So then let's start. Um, so last week we talked about all the parameters that influence the absorption. And now we are going to talk about distribution and what are the parameters that are influencing uh, the distribution of the drug. And because uh, in the first phase of the distribution, the drug are carried by the blood to the target, the blood flow is going to determine how fast the drug is going to distri be distributed. And if you have an organ that is well perfused, then the drug is going to be uh, released faster from the vasculature to the receptor, for example. So the blood flow really determines the rate of distribution. And so in order to exit the vascular system, it's the same uh, as entering the vascular system. So the drug has to exit and cross um, the wall of the capillary cell. But as we um, discussed last week, between the capillary cell, you have those little gaps. And so the, to exit the vasculature is not really a problem for most of the organs because it's the same principle. It's just you know to cross between uh, the capillary cells. Now there is an exception, is the blood-brain barrier. So the brain is protected by, um, by the blood-brain barrier and just to protect you know, your brain so you don't get all the chemical that goes to the brain. And you see that those gaps actually are filled. And so in order to be uh, distributed into the brain, the drug cannot cross, cannot go between the gaps because there is no gap. And so in order to be distributed in the brain, they have to be very lipophilic because they have to cross the membrane. So as we talked about last week, you know, the, um, the membrane is constituted of um, the lipid bilayers. And so in order to cross the blood-brain barrier, they have to be very liposoluble. Otherwise, they cannot, be, uh, they cannot penetrate uh, the brain. And for most of the drugs, you don't want them to penetrate you know, into the brain, but for drugs that are uh, acting as like antidepressant, you want the drug to act in the brain, so they have to be very liposoluble. Now, uh, the placental drug transfer, so between the exchange between the placenta and the fetal uh, circulation is the same principle as for um, the other membrane. So you have the placental membrane that is also uh, constituted with lipid bilayer, so they have to be lipophilic in order to exit uh, the placental membrane, but then to reach the circulation of the fetus is the same principle for the vasculature. Now, protein binding is going to also influence the distribution of the drug. So in the plasma, you have a lot of protein. And as you know, the most abundant protein in the plasma is the albumin. And drugs, actually, in order to be uh, transported <coughs> in the blood, they are uh, bound to the uh, plasma protein, and they are bound to albumin. But only, and there is an equilibrium between the bound and the unbound form. And only the unbound form can exit the vasculature and reach the target. So if you have a drug that is highly bound to the protein, its distribution is going to be slower because if it's bound, it cannot, be, it cannot exit the vasculature. And so it's going to take more time to exit um, the vasculature. So that's why protein binding can prolong the half-life because you have that equilibrium and it's, um, the kinetic is very strong 
and you cannot, um, you cannot unbound it, it takes more time for the drug to reach the target and then to produce its effect. Now this is an example, so you see on the left you have a drug that is weakly bound uh, to the protein and on the right you have a drug that is strongly bound. And as you can see here, if they are weakly bound then they can reach the target. You have more drugs that reach the target as illustrated by the arrows versus here you have less drugs that is reaching the target because they are uh, strongly bound to the protein. Now that's the same principle for its biotransformation, only the unbound form is going to be uh, biotransformed. So if you have a lot of unbound, so if it's, if it's weakly bound to the protein, you have more drugs that can be biotransformed compared to the ones that are uh, strongly bound. And then for the excretion, same principle. So you have more drugs that can exit the vasculature and be excreted in the kidney if it's weakly bound to uh, the plasma protein compared to the ones that are strongly bound. And that's what is reflected here when you have the time course of the drug. You see you have a high peak of plasma concentration because only the, the, the unbound is the one that you can measure, but then you see that it's eliminated faster because only the unbound can be eliminated. Versus here, you have only little that is free compared to a lot of the, <coughs> the drug that is bound to the protein. And this is important to know um, because some drugs that are uh, heavily bound, if you, so if you have a patient who has a single drug regimen and then you add a second drug that is also known to be um, a drug that are uh, strongly bound to the protein, once you're gonna administer the second one, you're gonna have competition for the same uh, protein and can displace the first one. And that means the first one, the concentration, the free concentration is gonna increase and you can reach toxicity. And we are gonna talk more about uh, those effects and those interactions uh, later on today. Now the third uh, parameter is the metabolism. So we follow you know, the, the pathway of the drug, first it's absorbed and distributed, reach the target, and then after it produces its effect, because it's reversible, then the drug is gonna be uh, metabolized. And so you're gonna have the transformation of the drug into metabolites that are more polar, and because they are more polar, they are more likely to be excreted in the urine. And these are several consequences of um, drug metabolism. First of all, what, uh, what is the purpose of you know, being metabolized? It's to accelerate the renal drug excretion. So here you have an example of uh, pentobarbital, which is a barbiturate, and it's gonna be metabolized in a more polar uh, chemical. You don't have to know the chemistry of it, you don't have to know, you know all the, those structures, but you see you have more polar groups. You have an additional OH there, and that means if it's more polar, it's more likely to be uh, excreted. Then you have a drug inactivation. So first the compound, the drug was active, and after being metabolized, the metabolite is inactive. So that's the case here. For example, protein, once it's metabolized, it's metabolized into an inactive. Uh, metabolite. But in some cases you can have an increase 
in therapeutic action. So this is the case for codeine. It can be metabolized into morphine, and morphine is a more potent analgesic than codeine. And so virtually, when it's metabolized, you can have an analgesic effect. But of course, the dose of codeine that is used for its antitussive properties is not going to be enough even if it's metabolized to produce an analgesic effect. It's just an example just to explain virtually what can happen. And then you have activation of prodrugs. Some drugs, they are prodrugs, and they need to be metabolized in order to be active. And that's the case, for example, of prazepam, which is a benzodiazepine. So it's an anxiolytic and a sedative drug. Uh, it has to be metabolized in order to become active. And then finally, you can have increased or decreased uh, toxicity. And the increase of toxicity can occur if you take um, a high dose or you know, um, repeated dose. And this is the example of acetaminophen, so Tylenol. It's a pretty safe drug, but if you don't follow the instruction and you take more than 10 grams of uh, Tylenol per day, you're gonna reach the saturation of the enzyme that metabolize um, acetaminophen, and then you're gonna have the formation of an hepatotoxic compound. If you take it at the, you know, two gram, three gram per day, you're not gonna see those effects, but if you take, you know, 10 gram, that's what can happen. Now there are special um, consideration about the drug metabolism. So first of all, the age. You know that in um, newborn, their liver capacity is not fully developed, and so for them, it's going to take more time to metabolize the drug, and that's why um, in newborn, you try first not to give drug, but if they need to have drug, you have to give them a smaller dose than in adults. Now, in elderly, their liver capacity tends to be reduced, and so for some drugs, you have also to adjust the dose in elderly because their liver is not as functional as in uh, young, <coughs> healthy adults. Drug interaction, because most of the <coughs> metabolism occur in the liver, there are a lot of uh, interaction. Um, so the drugs that are metabolized are metabolized by the same enzyme. And we are gonna talk about more example uh, later on about what is an enzyme, uh, enzymatic inducer and an enzymatic inhibitor. Competition between two drugs, so if they use the same enzyme, uh, of course uh, the metabolism is gonna be, they're, they're gonna compete for the same, uh, same enzyme. And then you have competition between the two drugs. And then the first pass effect, we talked about this last week, so if they, are, uh, if they reach uh, the liver before reaching the target, then you're gonna lose a lot of the active compound and you won't have the therapeutic effect. But those studies you know, are done before it's marketed and for you, you will know what dose you have to administer in, in order to have uh, the therapeutic effect. Now, as I said, most of the reaction occur in the liver, and there are two different phases um, two, two phase of metabolism. So the phase one reaction and the phase two reaction. Phase one reaction, they are performed by uh, the hepatic macrosomial enzyme system, which is also known as P450. 
I don't know if any of you have heard about the P450 system before. It's very important in terms of drug interaction. And those enzymes, the CYP enzyme, there are three different uh, CYP <coughs> enzymes that are um, used to metabolize the drug. And there, there is genetic variation between um, ethnicity, and these are responsible for the individual variation. So from one patient to the other, most of the individual variation are caused by the CYP uh, enzyme because some um, patients are fast metabolizer and some are slow metabolizer. And I'm gonna talk about it uh, in the next slide. The phase one reaction are functionalization. Um, and that means you're gonna add a more polar group. Most of the time you are gonna add an hydroxyl group. So those phase one reaction, most of the phase one reaction are oxidation or reduction <coughs> reaction. And those uh, metabolic product in most, case, in most cases are less active than the original drug. Now you have phase two reaction that take place most of the time after the phase one reaction, but for some drug, if they are already polar, they can go straight to the phase two reaction. Those phase two are conjugation reaction, and so you have your <coughs> metabolite from the phase one reaction that is gonna um, actually be conjugated with an endogenous substance. And that substance can be glucuronic acid, glycine, you don't have to remember all this, just you know, remember phase one is functionalization, phase two conjugation, conjugation. And that the, you know, the, the aim of those reaction is to make the drug more polar and more uh, favorable for the excretion. And for those phase two reaction, this is not the SIP enzyme, but they are called transferase. And the phase two uh, reaction are relatively faster than uh, the CYP enzyme reaction. This is an example. Uh, so this is aspirin. And during the phase one reaction, so aspirin is gonna be uh, metabolized in a more polar form. And you see here you have the formation of an hydroxyl group, which is more polar and it's salicylic acid. And phase two reaction, it's a conjugation reaction and you have the conjugation of, uh, with the glucuronic acid, and the result is a glucuronide, which is more polar because you have all those hydroxyl groups, and this metabolite is gonna be uh, excreted faster than this aspirin compound that wasn't polar, as polar. Now let's go back to the, the CYP enzyme. So as I said, um, they are responsible for the individual uh, variation in metabolism. And so you have CYP1, CYP2, CYP3. And in your handout, you receive um, this um, list. As I said, you don't have to remember all those names, but try to play with it and um, to see if you have an inducer what is it gonna do to the substrate? And if you have an inhibitor, what is it gonna do to the substrate? And before we uh, move on to that table, you have to know that those CYP enzymes, as I said, they are genetically uh, regulated. And so Asian, they are poor metabolizer. 
you probably know that they also pull metabolizer with alcohol. <laughs> and so that's the same thing with drug. <laughs> um, if, they metabolize, if their uh, metabolism is lower, that means more drug is gonna stay in the body and have a, a higher effect for a longer period of time. So you want to consider it for some of the drug, maybe you need to reduce the dose if you administer um, to some Asian patient. Now Ethiopians, they are ultra rapid metabolizer. So that means they metabolize faster than anybody else. Now if you have an inducer, so some drugs here you see they are listed as inducer on the far right column. And on the top, you have the, the type of enzyme, is if it's CYP1A2, CYP2C9. And again, you don't have to know, you know which enzyme they are, um, in, they are an inducer for or an inhibitor for, but you have to know what it's gonna do to the substrate. And so because they are inducer, that means they, they increase the metabolism of other drugs, so they increase the metabolism of drugs that are listed as substrate. And because they increase the metabolism of those substrates, the substrate, the concentration of that substrate is gonna be um, reduced because if it's metabolized, if, it's, if you have more metabolism, you're gonna have less uh, drugs that remain in the plasma. So the plasma concentration is gonna be smaller and then it's also, they're also gonna have a shorter half-life. So as an example, if you take your table, um, you have um, barbiturate, so phenobarbital, which is an inducer, and then the substrate is verapamil, which is a calcium channel blocker that can be used for uh, hypertension, for example, or arrhythmia. You see that those um, two drugs are gonna interact and because phenobarbital is an inducer, it's gonna increase the metabolism of verapamil and that means you're gonna have less verapamil in the plasma. And so you're gonna have a smaller effect. So if you don't adjust the dose, you might lose the effect of verapamil. Now, in case of um, simultaneous administration of carbamazepine and estrogen, so carbamazepine is an anti-epileptic drug and estrogen you know, is used as a birth control pill. And there was some cases that women that were on birth control pill and then had to take uh, carbamazepine for epilepsy and became pregnant. Why? It's because carbamazepine is known as an inducer and so induce the metabolism of estrogen and that means if you have less um, estrogen, it's not gonna do uh, its uh, pharmacologic uh, effect in so now it's a, it's, an, it's a known interaction, and if you look at your list, carbamazepine uh, interacts with almost all the CYP enzyme. So it's very uh, well-known interaction. Same thing with bar uh, the barbituric. Now you have newer anti-epileptic that can be used, yeah? An inhibitor is going to inhibit the metabolism of the substrate. 
And so if it inhibits their metabolism, you're gonna have an increase in the plasma concentration of the other drug and an increase in their half-life. And another well-known um, inhibitor enzymatic is cimetidine, which is used for the treatment of peptic ulcer. It was one of the first one, no, it's not as used as before. But cimetidine is well known for its drug interaction. And so if you take cimetidine with sertraline, which is Zoloft, which is uh, it's an antidepressant, you're gonna have uh, more sertraline and that can result in more adverse effects. Now fluoxetine, which is Prozac, um, this is also um, well known, uh, a drug that's well known for uh, its interaction. So it's gonna inhibit the um, metabolism of uh, propanolol, and that means you're gonna have more propanolol, which is a beta blocker, and you can also have more adverse effects. So you have the list, you can just, you know, when you're at home, when you do your study guide, just play with it, and maybe you have one question on your midterm. <laughs> <laughs> no excretion so that's the last step of um, the pharmacokinetic parameters so um, what are the factors that are going to influence the excretion um, as we said last time yeah Oh, you don't know. So here you have the inducer. For example, the far right column, it's an inducer, and then you have the substrate. So if you see phenobarbital, which is an inducer, is gonna increase the metabolism of verapamil. That's how you have to read it. And if you look at an inhibitor, which are in the middle, like the middle column, so if you take cimetidine and propanolol, Cimetidine is an inhibitor, and the substrate is propanolol. So it's on the first, um, on the CYP1A2. So the inhibitor is gonna inhibit the substrates. So the substrate can, you know, it's the same for the inducer or for the inhibitor, but it's just that the inducer is gonna have a different effect. That's how you have to interpret. You understand? Okay. More example? Take some people for two, it's either yellow or red. If you have nice to white ones. I just think it would be more interesting if you like get some like the chain or your barbecue and like some ones on the list. I think that would be worth oh. it. you know, all those substrates, just, you know, took some common drugs and common, you know, like yeah. interaction. So for the customer, try to understand the way it works. Yeah, you just, you know, maybe I will pick two drugs there, but you don't have to remember, you know, I'm not gonna ask you, okay, uh, tell me what does uh, phenytoin to the other drug. I will say this, phenytoin is known to be an inducer, and what is it gonna do to, I don't know, clopidogrel? And you have to tell me. <laughs> you guys don't have to memorize. Are inhibitors inhibitors because they're using that cascade, so the other drug can't do the cascade? Is that how it works? They are known to act on the enzyme and inhibit the enzyme, just you know, by in vitro testing, that's how they discover it, yeah. Um, so just to clarify, the inducer 
Yeah, if you take the inducer, you might want to increase the dose. Because if it's induced, it's going to increase the metabolism, right. so, so you're going to have... If you're taking the inducer, it reduces the half-life of the substrate. Yeah. So you need more of the substrate to feel it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the example where you were talking about the oral contraceptives and the carbamazepine, it's... Um, Most most of the time, carbamazepine is a, it's is known as an inducer. Uh -huh. Yeah, and the substrate. So it's here on uh, CP3A4. So if you take estrogen, which is on the top of the second column, it's on the substrate. Do you find it? So it's on um, page three. Yeah, page three. So you have carbamazepine on the on. Find it. So carbamazepine is a it's an inducer. So it, so it's going to increase the metabolism. That means you have less estrogen, and because you know at that concentration, estrogen is used as a birth control pill, and if you have less of it, it might not be protective. Enough, and you might, you know, want to use another way of contraception or use another anti-epileptic drug if it's needed. Okay. Any other questions? One more. Yeah, if you take both, you know, that means you have to take three drugs. You know, the inducer, the inhibitor, and because the substrate might not be, you know, the same. So I, I think my question was, um, I think what Carmine was saying was that um, on step one, uh -huh. if it's an induced, is an inhibitor, and then um, Yeah, they are just going to balance, you know, each other, yeah. You know, this doesn't mean that the patient are going to take all those combinations. It's more, you know, to see if you understand the concept. <laughs> you know like if it's for the lining you can use for example some anti-acids you know yeah. some thumbs which is a different mechanism of action uh, this is really you know like what happened in the liver when they are metabolized but um, you know when they know as I said you know carbamazepine is a well-known drug cimetidine and when the doctors knows it, it's going to check, you know, which one is less likely to interact. For the same indication, it's going to try to choose one that is not going to interact with that inducer. Or if you can avoid using that drug and give something else, if the patient already has the substrate and has to be treated for, um, an, let's say, epileptic event, then it might choose another one than carbamazepine. More questions? No. So let's move on to the excretion. So what is excretion? I think you all know what it is. 
It's just the removal of the drug from uh, the body. And the drug and the metabolite can exit the body in the urine, in the bile, in the sweat, breast milk uh, for uh, women who are breastfeeding and expired hair. Um, urine is the most common way of excretion. Last week we talked about uh, some drugs that can be eliminated in the stool if they are undergoing um, the enterohepatic cycle. And yeah, some can be excreted in the sweat, but it's just gonna be like a small fraction compared to the fraction that is excreted um, in, the, in the urine. Same thing with the lungs. Some drugs you know, are uh, volatile and they can be excreted in, um, when you breathe. And um, yeah, breast meal, as you know, some can be excreted in the breast meal. And so for uh, women are um, breastfeeding, it's always better to avoid, you know, uh, taking drug, but you know, some indication requires to be on medication all the time. And uh, same thing, you want to choose a drug that is known not to be as much excreted. And you know, of course, because the uh, breast meal is lipophilic, most of the liposoluble drugs are gonna be excreted in the breast meal. Um, so yeah, the renal route, is the most important, and then we have the other uh, non-renal route. And these are the different steps in the renal excretion. I guess you all have your pathophysiology of kidney and physiology, but you know, just, uh, it's just a refresher. The first step, so the drug, if they are small, so at the low molecular weight, they can be filtered. Um, the ones that are too big, they will use this active transport. That means they will need a protein to be carried into um, the nephron and be excreted that way. But so if they are small enough, they can you know, be filtered. And then we talked about those properties last week. If they are still a little bit lipid-soluble, they can be reabsorbed and go back to the circulation. If they are non-lipid-soluble um, or if they are polar, then they will be uh, excreted. Now the factor that modify uh, the drug excretion through the kidneys are the pH. So we talked about this last week. The pH of the urine can influence the excretion of the drug. Uh, the competition for the active tubular transport. So if two drugs are competing for the same uh, protein transport, then it can delay the renal excretion because only one at a time can, be, can use the tubular transport. And then the age, as for the metabolism, the excretion is also gonna be influenced by the age of the patient. So newborn, their kidney are not fully developed and so it's gonna be slower in newborn. And elderly, their kidney function start to be impaired and then uh, that means the excretion take more time in elderly. Now the time course of a drug response. So last week we talked about the therapeutic goal where you want the maximum therapeutic effect and the minimum adverse effect. So there are different parameters that <coughs> need to be known is the minimum effective concentration. Below that, that concentration, you won't see any therapeutic response. So for example, if you have a painkiller before reaching the minimum effective concentration, you won't have any pain relief. 
once you reach that minimum effective concentration, that's when you start seeing the effect. And then there is a toxic concentration. If you keep you know, administrating the dose and you increase the plasma concentration of that drug, you're gonna reach a toxic concentration. Most of the drugs, they have what is called the therapeutic range as a large um, therapeutic window. So that means the, the concentration, the minimum effective concentration and the toxic concentration are way apart. And so it's safer even if you increase the dose, you're not gonna see any adverse effect. That's the case for Tylenol. But some other drugs, they have a, a narrow therapeutic windows, and so you can see um, some toxicity just by slightly increasing the dose or in a patient who has you know, some uh, renal dysfunction, for them it's more tricky to uh, adjust the dose and you can see those um, adverse effects more frequently. And even though the, um, the blood is not your therapeutic target, the target is really gonna be either your receptor or it's gonna be an enzyme, it is considered that what is measured in the plasma is directly related to the concentration of the drug at the target. So when you want to determine um, what concentration of the drug is gonna reach the target, what you do, you just draw blood. You're not you know, gonna take a biopsy to measure the, con the, the concentration of your drug where you want the drug to have uh, its action. So you just measure the plasmatic uh, concentration of the drug. So that's what it is, the clinical significance of the plasma drug level, determine what is at, um, at the site of action. And if you have inappropriate um, plasma level, you can see toxicity, and that's how you can adjust and you can monitor the dose that you are gonna administer. So the two parameter, I <coughs> just define them. So the range between the MEC and the toxicity concentration is called the therapeutic range. And of course, the objective is to maintain <coughs> the plasma concentration um, within the therapeutic range. So most of the time, you don't determine that concentration, but for some drugs that need to be monitored because they are known, you know, if you have an acute, you know, an acute setting and you, you start a new drug with a short um, therapeutic index, you want to monitor and see if you are within that window. So that's, as I said, acetaminophen, so Tylenol has a wide uh, therapeutic index. So the toxic level are 30 times the minimal effective concentration. So, you know, you can increase the dose without seeing any toxicity. And lithium, which is uh, used for bipolar disorder, is known to have a narrow therapeutic range. So in that case, the toxic level are only three times um, the, the MEC and it's more tricky and that's why people who are on uh, lithium, they have to monitor their level on a regular basis to see if you are within that therapeutic range to avoid toxicity. And here on that curve, so you see when you administer the dose, 
you don't reach that minimum effective concentration right away because of the absorption and the distribution process. So you're gonna have an increase of the plasma drug concentration as the drug is absorbed. And then <coughs> this is you know, the example of a single dose administration. Then you reach a maximum. And then after when uh, the excretion and the metabolism uh, phases occurs, then you start seeing a reduction in the plasma concentration. And the duration, of course, is the time between um, when you hit you know, the minimum um, effective concentration when it's absorbed, and then after uh, when it starts to be metabolized, when you start you know, being below that concentration is no longer effective. So really the duration is between those two uh, time points. Now another um, parameter that is another pharmacokinetic parameter is bioavailability. I don't know if you've heard about bioavailability of drugs, and that's the proportion of the administered dose that is present in the plasma. So if you are injecting um, an IV, um, if you do an IV injection, the dose administered goes straight into your plasma, and so the bioavailability for IV drugs is 100 because everything is there. Now when you give it orally, only a fraction of the dose that is administered is gonna reach um, the circulation, and so it's gonna be different. And that bioavailability is the area under the curve for a neural drug divided by your area under the curve for an injected drug multiplied by 100. So what does that mean? Here you see, if you give a drug um, by IV, because the concentration is the maximum when you inject it, that's when, uh, since you inject it straight in, your, uh, in the blood, you, have, you start here and then as you metabolize it and excrete it, you see that the plasma concentration decreases, and the area under the curve is the gray, uh, is the gray shape. Then for an oral drug, because you have the absorption process, what you administered is gonna take, you know, a is gonna take some time to reach uh, the plateau and the maximum uh, concentration in the plasma, and then you have a decrease, a descending phase when it starts to be metabolized. And that's the area under the curve here. So for drugs that, uh, that are very bioavailable, the black area is almost equal to the gray area and you're gonna have a bioavailability close to 100. But for the one that are not very bioavailable, such as estrogen, their um, area under the curve is gonna be more like this one, that, uh, this um, black area. <coughs> so we're gonna take a break here, and we will try you know, to <laughs> probably stop you know, around uh, 1.30 to you know, have time to answer some of the IT curve questions. So we'll do a break of 10 minutes and then um, try, you know, to stop at 1.30, 1.35 and do some IT curve questions.